Good afternoon and welcome to this Euractiv The Presidency debate series. I'm Brian McGuire. Today we address the twin transition. How can green growth and digital transformation go hand in hand to drive Europe's recovery? Our event today is sponsored by Microsoft. You can follow the discussion at hashtag EADebates and please tweet your comments. Our social media team will respond to you there. And to ask questions, go to the chat section and use the ask button. President Biden is about 150 meters uh, away from us here and um, he may drop in later, of course, and we did send an invite. And uh, we also have a keynote address today. Then we'll have uh, what's billed as a fireside chat. I'd rather be doing this in the ice cream parlor today, though. And then we'll have a panel discussion where you can send your uh, questions uh, to the panelists. And uh, you don't have to wait till the very end for that. You can send them any time. We'll be paying attention to that. And we'll put those to the panelists later on. But to begin today, we have with us Mr. Joao Galamba. He's the Deputy Minister and Secretary of State for Energy of the Portuguese Republic. It's my pleasure to introduce Mr. Galamba with the keynote address. Mr. Galamba. Thank you, Brian. Um, let me start by thanking Euroactive for the invitation to participate in this virtual conference with an extremely important subject, the twin, the twin transition with a pertinent question. How can green growth and digital transformation go hand in hand to drive Europe's recovery? We are facing so many challenges, but I believe the challenges promote the creation of new solutions and in this way, new opportunities must be found. It is an honor to be here and to have the opportunity to share and discuss some of the Portuguese ambitions and vision to develop an energy transition aligned both with the digital transformation to promote the competitiveness of our companies with social, environmental and economic benefits for all. The challenges our societies face required concerted action between energy, climate and digital policies, since this is the only possible way to achieve a carbon neutral economy and a society that both promotes economic growth and a better quality of life. Portugal's sustainable growth trajectory is founded upon um, a more competitive and resilient development growth model, reducing the consumption of energy resources and at the same time creating new employment opportunities, increasing wealth creation and foster new knowledge development. This trajectory is anchored on Portugal's uh, National Energy and Climate Plan 2021-2030. This path to a carbon neutral economy requires joint action in several strategic areas, with priority being given to energy efficiency, greater diversification of energy sources, increase in electrification, reinforcement and modernization of infrastructures, development of interconnection, market stability and investment, reconfiguration and digitalization of the energy markets, incentives for research and innovation, promotion of low carbon processes, products and services, and finally improved energy services and the informed choice for consumers. Significant volumes of renewable energy combined with technology solutions need to be deployed to meet climate targets that have been set. Deployment is a consequence, but also a facilitator of decreasing technology costs. Each type of renewable energy technology has its own challenges associated to a more widespread de deployment. The energy transition is not necessarily a burden for the consumers or the taxpayers. For example, Portugal's 2019 and 2020 solar auctions demonstrated the competitiveness of renewable electricity in its solar form. Both tenders were resounding successes, with Portugal setting 
uh, one world record in 2019, and then again a new world record in 2020 for the lowest world uh, solar tariff price. We have since been beaten by a country in the Middle East, but we consider this an honor because Portugal is not a Middle Eastern country, is a European country, and being able to compete with Middle Eastern countries with much higher solar resources, we consider this to be a success, not a failure. While holding the presidency of the Council of the European Union, Portugal is... and circular transitions while contributing to an innovative, inclusive and resilient society, thus maximizing the sustainability benefits of digitalization and to support the green digital transformation of sectors such as energy and transport. It is not possible to accelerate the green growth without a digital transformation of the energy sector. The success of the energy transition is highly dependent on digital technologies and digitalization of the energy sector essentially because we need trusted data, data in useful time or in real time, so we can measure and monitor to forecast using sophisticated algorithms and analytic approach, such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, and predictive analytics to better know and actuate, resorting to automated decision-making tools to optimize and dynamically control and coordinate several events, activities, and energy flows based on a connectivity between infrastructures, equipments, and users. We can reinforce the installed capacity of renewable energy, but without a platform or tool to, able to be able to measure all the variables and constraints in an aggregated and integrated way, it will not be possible to optimize the system. For this reason, we need to take into account the Internet of Things approaches in order to create the Internet of Energy framework. With the digitalization of the energy sector, it will be possible to decarbonize um, by increasing the energy efficiency and the use of renewables, optimize the energy management, energy balancing of supply and demand, and, and also combining centralized and decentralized approaches, thus reducing the use of fossil fuels, namely in road transportation by electrifying vehicle fleets, among others. The digitalization of the energy sector will become central to promote the integration of renewables in the energy system based on digital technologies and also green and smart buildings, residential and public, uh, public and, ser and general services that use sustainable solutions and technologies such as energy efficient equipment and systems that allow the production of electricity for cell consumption, eco-friendly materials and energy management systems composed by smart metering with embedded sec uh, sensors connected able to monitor and produce data to be shared with the consumer and the supplier for billing, for example, but also in order to be processed in order to optimize the energy use in buildings, avoiding waste and reducing costs.
In smart mobility, the electric vehicles should be seen as a battery, uh, decentralized battery, able to charge and discharge intelligently and connected to the entire energy grid to achieve a better integration of renewables in the whole system. So um, applications such as uh, vehicle to grid or vehicle to home contributing for an en a better energy management are key in the current energy transformation that we're witnessing and that we want to promote. Also in self-consumption and renewable energy communities, based on the use of local and decentralized energy production, systems for self-consumption or to share with neighbors, promoting the end user as a prosumer able to consume, produce, store and provide load flexibility according to the grid and market needs. Being an agent in the smart grid context using ICT sensors, solutions that incorporate artificial intelligence capable of monitoring and process real data in real time. For all of this and much more, digitalization is a key enabler of the energy transition and the Portuguese government wants to promote this hand in hand to drive Europe's recovery in a fair and inclusive way, developing innovative public policies and creating a supportive legislative and regulatory framework that allows the innovation and stimulates the innovation of the energy sector based on new solutions and digital technologies, thus promoting the capacity of innovation, job creation, increased competitiveness and a general decarbonization of society where definitely renewables and energy won't go far without a digital revolution in the energy sector. Thank you very much. Mr. Galamba, thank you so much. Um, the technical team are asking me if you, you can check in your chat. There's a, an, a, an error with your video. Um, we can hear everything perfectly. If you just check with that and uh, I'll introduce Casper uh, uh, right now as well. So we're going to have a discussion between uh, Mr. Golamba and Casper uh, Klinge. He's the Vice President for European Government Affairs at uh, Microsoft. Good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon. It's, Good to see you. Get, you too. We'll get uh, Mr. Golamba's video back in just a second. Uh, we want to just kick this off looking at sustainability, competitiveness, and innovation. These elements have all got to go hand in hand somehow, but what's the role of digital in this, Casper? How do you see it? As basically the, the foundation or the building block for us to uh, go in the sustainable direction. And I think you know, the, the minister was alluding to this in his intervention that I think what is really fascinating about you know where we are right now, 2021, after a very difficult year, is that there is really focus on not only sustainability, not only going green, but also using the technologies we have available as of today, using digitalization as a measure of uh, moving forward in this area. And I think we see that across the board, and it's actually one of the areas where I think we, we should give credit to the European Union for showing not only leadership uh, in this part of the world, but also uh, across the world. In, in making sure that uh, that we move in the right direction. And, you know, Brian, if we'd had this discussion, I don't know, 14, 15, 16 months ago, and you would have asked me, are we sure that the sustainability focus, you know, focusing on, on renewable energy that would survive contact with a global pandemic, I'm not sure we would have 
uh, been absolutely sure that it would and that we would have you know the level of ambitions we we have today not least with the green deal coming out of the european union so so the short version of this is uh, digitalization in, in our view and i think the minister said very much the same is is the foundation the building block for us to achieve the uh, the ambitious goals uh, not only of the european union but in fact around the world and ultimately i think it's it's going to be one of the key areas if we want to mitigate climate change and we want to move the world in in a better direction Okay, we've got Mr. Glamour's video back. Excellent. Uh, you know, sustainability is easy enough to understand in this context, but competitiveness, how do you see uh, Europe's uh, competitive edge uh, being delivered through digital uh, means, Mr. Glamour? Uh, well, it just means uh, taking the best of both worlds on the energy world and the, and the digital world and realizing that they all, uh, there are huge synergies in both. We cannot achieve cost reductions in grid management and the optimization of uh, energy flows without a huge component of digitalization of the energy systems. It's simply impossible. Uh, for example, currently, most uh, grid planning is done in, is done in non-probabilistic uh, means. So we are over-investing in uh, security of the grid exactly because digitalization uh, is not entirely used in all its potential one of the impacts of digitalization is the entire optimization in real time of all energy assets and thus reducing grid costs and grid um, um, and, and the operational aspects uh, of, uh, of grid management. The, this represents significant cost reductions and an optimization of the entire energy system. Okay. Also, for example, in the new role of uh, prosumers, uh, energy communities, the local production, consumption, and shareability of, of energy will not be possible without uh, digitalization of this reality. So digitalization is a central pillar of all developments of the energy world that we are witnessing and that we want to promote. You, you mentioned in your, your keynote uh, address about the role of AI in this as well. So when we talk about digital, it's, it's not just about uh, measuring, but the, the, the capacity to reallocate the, the load uh, and redirect the load uh, where necessary as well. You know, are we so at far at the very beginning of this process that there's a massive scale-up uh, possible? Kasper Klinger? I think we're at the beginning of the process, and, and again, I want to uh, you know double down on what the minister said. I think you know the technologies we help develop, including machine learning and AI, we fundamentally believe, and I'm, I'm sure this will be a surprise to you, is is one of the keys in making sure that we move the sustainability agenda forward. And I think looking at smart grids and making sure that we uh, enable more use of renewable energy on, on our grid system is, is one of the areas where we think we need more investments. And as the minister said, you know, actually controlling the, 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 the energy loads, making sure that we can bring in renewable energy when we have that available, we can distribute it in a more efficient way. That, in our view, requires technology, it requires machine learning, it requires uh, artificial uh, intelligence. But I think it's also important just to be honest in saying that, of course, when we look into the crystal ball, into the future, there is no doubt that there will be a requirement for you know energy that will power you know the computers, our data centers, 
that will be such a key part of, uh, of the digital economy. And I think that requires really massive investments in renewable energy and green energy, but also making sure that, that we can do that. And I think there are a couple of areas where Europe can certainly also lead the way. And, you know, not because uh, I want to be, um, you know, inappropriate with, with the Portuguese presidency, but I think the Portuguese presidency has also shown the direction in this and in acknowledging that we're not where we need to be, but we've set, uh, you know, in motion ambitious uh, targets in this area also to make sure that we have much more efficient energy markets that our grid systems are working with state-of-the-art technology today. I think that's going to be essential. Mr. Glambo, you know, we have the 2030 targets now and it, it's clear what we need to do, but how should we do it? What's, what should be the, the, the driving uh, force to, to get us there? Well, uh, uh, I think the general, um, the collective and individual commitment of all EU, EU member states and, uh, and, the European, and the European Union as a whole is a key driver. We see, we see for, for example, um, uh, mandatory targets as enablers of investment. So they crowd in investment. They are not a regulatory uh, hindrance to the functioning of markets, but they point to a direction, they signal a commitment, and they actually crowd in investment. So that's crucial. This, com this political commitment on the global level, on the collective level of the EU and on the individual level of each member states, for us, is the key enabler. And then, of course, uh, we need to streamline all licensing uh, procedures to ensure that the uh, huge ambition that Europe as a whole has for 2030 uh, is translated into the material realities that will allow those goals to, uh, uh, to be achieved. On Portugal's side, uh, we really believe that um, both uh, stimulating uh, um, uh, uh, local production uh, uh, is a key driver for this. We see a huge dynamics in uh, all our industrial sectors and most companies in Portugal are now installing uh, solar PV production in their, uh, in their um, uh, um, roofs and, uh, um, and the land around the uh, uh, factories. It's, uh, it's, it's growing significantly in Portugal. And also uh, we're doing auctions to ensure two things at the same time a control by the public authorities that we not only define the goals, but then the conditions to achieve those goals, but also to ensure, and this is critical for us, that the huge grow in, uh, growth in renewables in the next decade uh, is, at the same time, uh, means good news for consumers. Uh, this might not be the case in all uh, uh, European countries, although we we'll believe it is, but it's definitely uh, the case in Portugal. Uh, every time we add one megawatt of solar, the um, savings in terms of costs for uh, for a very high competitive country in solar resources such as Portugal is excellent news for industry and for um, uh, for consumers. So I think one of the key drivers is to show that all of this ambition is simultaneously good news for consumers and good news for the economy. At least in Portugal, this is guaranteed. Okay. Kasper Klinger, you fit for 55, it's, it's a nice catchy slogan. Um, you could think it's about getting to the gym after uh, lockdown. Uh, but you know, in terms of digital, how do we... Some of us need. 
Yeah, I, I'm a week into this and it still hurts. So, so you know, how do we trans, can we do the gym thing digitally as well? If you can provide a solution for that, it would be great. How do we get the fit, fit to 55 with digital solutions? And, you know, Mr. Glambos just mentioned about the consumer benefit in this as well. You, what are the dynamics here for business, for the consumer, uh, and for society in general when it comes to digital integration and achieving fit to 55? Yeah, I mean, first of all, Brian, let's let's talk about the opportunity to digitalize the gym afterwards. I mean, some of us could <laughs> desperately need the going down that road as well. I'm not sure we've innovated enough in this area, but uh, we'll leave that for a separate debate. You know, it's not, I think you know the Fit for 55 package is is really a historic opportunity for the European Union in setting in motion. You know, nothing short of a of a significant revolution in in going green and in, in in the sustainability area. I was actually looking together with my team at, at a pretty interesting article in The Economist where you look at previous uh, crises, uh, you know, the oil crisis of the 1970s, we've had several uh, along the way, the financial crisis, uh, you know, 10 years ago, and what happened to emissions after that. And the interesting thing is we saw a small dip, but then afterwards you actually had a trajectory of going, you know, even more steep, if you like, uh, than, than prior to, to the crisis. So, you know, history is not a good indicator of us being able to break the curve on on carbon emissions but this might be the first time in history where we've had a global crisis an unprecedented crisis and on the other side of that the the need for us to you know recreate jobs and build back the economy you know very much what what the european union is doing um, with the recovery and resilience packages that is not necessarily going to be followed in parallel by another steep increase in, in emissions. And, and I think this is really the first uh, fantastic opportunity of the Fit for 55 package that will, will come forward. Um, and I hope it will be ambitious and I hope it will also put uh, you know, constraints and set in, in motion your know, policies with requirements that will also enable the industry to go forward in the right direction. The, the other thing I would say, Brian, is that you know when you look back at some of the previous crises, and I have often spoken about the oil crisis in the 70s and how that had a huge impact in creating really a green sector across Europe, in, including in, in, the, in the country that I come from, as you can hear from my accent. You know, I think what is different or what feels different here in 2021 is, you know, the partnership between the private sector and the public sector is perhaps also unprecedented because I don't think there is a contradiction anymore between the policies being promoted by our political leadership across Europe and then what the industry needs to do. And I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, a company like, like Microsoft had also independently, uh, you know, come forward with extremely high ambitions about being carbon negative in 2030 and removing all legacy emissions going back to 1975 before the year of 2050, making sure that all our data centers will run on renewable energy before 2025. So I think what, what is the good news about the situation right now is that we understand that we have a much bigger crisis ahead of us that requires a much closer collaboration between the public and the private sector. And the good news is I don't think there is a, 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 a sort of a debate or a, um, a misfit between what the industry wants to do and what policymakers wants to do. And I think that will ultimately benefit this course. Joao Lambo, you mentioned about uh, the different dynamics say, in Portugal when it came to, to solar deployment in particular as well. You know, the role of partnerships is, is clearly critical uh, in, in any country and across the whole of Europe of this. But you know, from your experience in terms of stakeholders, different sectors and, and your observations about 
geography as well and what Portugal can do perhaps is, is going to be different from my country in Ireland in terms of solar capacity. You know, how, how do you view the different dynamics at play here? How do you bring the stakeholders together for the benefit of all of Europe? Well, <coughs> in Portugal, we don't need to bring the stakeholders together. They are already aligned and they already recognize the huge benefits that renewables have. So that, that's a coordinating task that Portugal is dispensed of. We don't need it. It's self-evident that this benefits consumers, industries. So that coordinating activities that in some countries uh, uh, should define a, an important role for the central state to coordinate all of that in Portugal is facilitated for this reason. Everybody immediately understands the huge advantages that we have. When we see now prices at 90 in the European and the Iberian market, uh, um, just for you to have an idea of what solar can mean in terms of savings, the, the average tariff in our first auction was 20 euros per megawatt. So each megawatt hour produced, they will sell at 20. With the market now at 90, you can imagine what are the savings for the system and for consumers. So this requires no explanation in Portugal. But uh, saying this, not all country uh, is the same. And I admit that there are uh, countries where these advantages are not as self-evident as they are in Portugal or in Spain or in Italy or in Greece, in the southern European countries. For that, uh, our task is uh, significantly uh, facilitated because of this. Everybody understands in Portugal, all stakeholders, the huge advantages of this. So our biggest role is just is not to bring together our uh, stakeholders, but to ensure that the coordination that is already in place is optimized to ensure that we just achieved our goals as fast as we can. Every time we uh, overperform in Portugal in terms of renewables, the end result is higher savings. Okay, Kasselflinger, you the real partnership and innovation go hand in hand across Europe as well. You know, we 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 are getting better as a, a union at working in terms of uh, innovative partnerships and funding that as well. And part of the recovery plan is very focused on investing and in, in innovation. Uh, to if we're going to go green and digital and transition, you know, what kind of partnerships do you see? What kind of partnerships do Microsoft take uh, part in, which you think uh, are really the way forward? Because not all partnerships are equal. Yeah, I mean, one one of the key uh, success stories, I think, in in uh, in the recovery after the the global pandemic is, of course, the focus on both you know the transition as we're discussing the, the, today, both the sustainability and the digitalization efforts. And I should uh, congratulate Portugal for for being the first country that actually came back with with a strategy and and a plan for for the recovery and resilience package. So I think that's a that's a good beginning of it. Um, I think what we have to do is to look at, at you know, how can we assist in uh, in helping countries go through this uh, transition. Um, one of the areas that I think is going to be such an important part of uh, of the success story, also around sustainability and, and and going green, is to make sure that it benefits everybody. And I think it's one of the problems we're seeing not only in Europe but really across the world that, you know. The, the climate change doesn't affect equally. There are certain populations that are much heavily affected by it than others. Uh, that happens on a global scale. We all know the stories around the world, but even in Europe, we have areas that are much harder affected by climate change or where 
the sustainability transition could potentially mean that people are losing traditional jobs uh, at a level uh, unlike uh, other places. So I think what what uh, EVP Timmermans often refers to as, as a just transition, you know, the ability to make sure that, that, that the green transition will benefit everybody is one of the big challenges we, we have ahead of us. And I think there are many ways of, of doing that. One thing is to make sure you have connectivity uh, everywhere. I mean, you cannot be part of the digital economy unless you have access to broadband. I think that's a massive challenge globally, but also in Europe. I think another area where we have to make sure that, that this come across is, you know, access to renewable energy. We, we're teaming up, for example, in your home country, in Ireland, uh, to make sure that we have a more flexible, uh, you know, renewable energy system that will benefit also people in more rural areas. And I think that's a joint responsibility. I, I don't think it will serve the climate uh, change cause if we don't make sure that we have everybody on board in the bus. So I think there are numerous areas where we have to innovate, where we have to team up, but frankly speaking, where we also have to invest to make sure that there is also political, almost, I would say, more broader societal um, support for, for the green transition. Well, the, the support, and like you say, the, the just transitions as Vice President, uh, Executive, Executive Vice President Timmermans lays out, uh, it requires everybody to benefit from this or democracy itself will be at risk as a consequence. Uh, you know, the, the Microsoft as a leadership uh, corporation as well, you know, it's, it's a global brand, people see where you're going. You've committed to a carbon negative uh, outcome as well. You know, what are the, what was the transition internally like this? Uh, how did you get to this point and, and what remains to be done? What are the challenges you still see? Uh, because other companies are going to face this as well, perhaps a different scale, but they're still going to face it. So what's, what remains to be done from your side? A ton of things is the honest answer. And, uh, you know, if we look at our different commitments, uh, we're pretty sure we can become carbon negative by 2030 using the technology we have available today, becoming more efficient, you know, doing internally what is required to make sure that everything we do with the technology, we build the products we build, that they are uh, sustainable in the long run. But we've also been very honest in saying, you know, removing our legacy emissions going back to 1975 requires technology that we don't have available today. So I guess, Brian, if your question is, you know, what is the difficult bit of what we've set in motion on our side? Um, I think there are easy bits and pieces where we know we have to continue to innovate to make sure that our data centers are, you know, running 100% on renewable energy, but also making sure that the focus on the green transition doesn't become the enemy of digitalization because, you know, I'm, of course, uh, getting paid to think, say this, but also as a European, I am deeply preoccupied with making sure that Europe will, will continue to be globally competitive. And that requires massive investments in digitalization. Okay. And if you get a contradiction between going green and digitalizing, uh, then I think we will not serve the interests of, of Europe. So those are areas where, where okay. we think we need to do more. Thank you. We're pretty close on time. I'm going to go over to the panel discussion in just a moment as well. Joao Galambo, Europe as a leader when it comes to the green and digital uh, transition, you know, we, we reshaped uh, global data with GDPR, for example. You know, our market is huge and will influence uh, globally as well. You know, Europe in a leadership position now, what does that mean in terms of uh, green and digital transition? Um, well, we, it means that we have particular responsibilities in moving both ahead. Um, uh, Europe has done so much. Um, uh, we are so uh, committed uh, uh, to this that I believe we have simultaneously the advantages of pursuing this, uh, 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 this strategy uh, and, and the conditions to do it. 
Um, and uh, um, the energy world in general needs to be uh, approached collectively. And we are very fortunate in Europe to have a group of, well, although there are differences between member states, of course, there is no unanimity, but there is a broad consensus that this, this is the way to move forward. Um, if uh, the world was, uh, um, uh, a, a, if Europe was a small um, uh, model of the world uh, uh, in its collective functioning, I think we would uh, achieve carbon neutrality faster and the energy transition would be speedier. But it is, it is an advantage that we do this in Europe, but it's also a responsibility. We have the goal to do it, uh, uh, to do it not only because we've defined uh, uh, as a collective objective that we must do it, but also to, to show the world that it can be done. And there are many areas of the world where um, uh, renewables are, uh, what I said before, that it's self-evident in Portugal that renewables are an obvious <coughs> climate and economic advantage. The same thing ap uh, applies to many regions of the world. So I think Europe has also the diplomatic role to show the world that this can be done and can be done with economic uh, and uh, job creation uh, advantages. And I think this is a message that uh, is necessary for the entire world to be committed to this. And I believe that it will be. Thank you. Casper uh, Klinger, a big part of that dynamic is the transatlantic relationship. We have President Biden outside our front door right now. A part of the agenda today is uh, climate. He brought the uh, United States back into the Paris Agreement as well. The agenda, at least for the next four years, seems relatively stable. You know, how do you accelerate and support the, the transition, uh, the, the, the dual transition, uh, with this transatlantic relationship? What are the dynamics that you're looking for? Yeah, I'm looking forward to, by the way, President Biden coming in through your back door, Brian, as you promised us in the beginning. Um, but, a lot uh, of but trouble, guess, actually. You know, just a few. <laughs> <laughs> okay, never, never over-promise and under-deliver. Um, no, what I would say is, I, I think actually what is happening here, it's probably a little bit further away from my office than, than from your office, uh, a few more hundred meters away, is a significant development. I mean, we have a, a U.S. president in, in, in Brussels for the first time in, in seven years. He's bringing with him, I think, you know, a, a really significant political message of wanting to team up with Europe across the board. Um, and we're expecting, I think, a, a, you know, a, a, a significant outcome of, of today's uh, EU-US summit. One of the areas I would point to is the likely establishment of a trade and technology council, which is really going to focus on both the opportunities in digitalization, but also some of the challenges. But I think having a transatlantic collaboration, I think we should bring the UK into, into that equation, by the way, where you're focusing on, on the twin transition uh, at the same time, I think is going to be significant. And, and this is one of the areas where I think actually the situation in Europe is not that different from the situation in the US. We spoke a little bit about the just transition. I think it's going to be incredibly important for our ability collectively to fight climate change that we have people with us and we know in the us that requires you know the um, the examples that the middle class the ones that perhaps are a bit more skeptical on, on on climate change that they also see the benefits of going green and in many ways i think we have the, the similar situation here on on the european side so i think the short version is whether you work for the industry whether you work as part of the, the the political leadership in Europe, it's a pretty good day. Uh, it's a pretty good day, I think, also for climate change and for sustainability.
Thank you. And uh, last word before we go over uh, to the panel, Jacques Galamba. Uh, trade and Technology Council, are you optimistic this will produce uh, a real gear shift for Europe? Sorry, can you repeat the Yes, the, the, the proposed uh, Trade and, and Technology Council, which we may hear about by the end of the day. Or, or would you be optimistic that this kind of dynamic will pr produce a real uh, a gear shift, a real change in, in pace for, for Europe? Uh, yes, I believe so. Uh, uh, as I said before, um, uh, cooperation and uh, coordination between different stakeholders is one of the um, uh, key elements of the success of this entire strategy. Uh, so, um, yes, the, the uh, a council such as that, of course, it is uh, an important enabler of, uh, of this trajectory and, it, uh, uh, and I believe that will improve the pace and the rhythm of, of where we're going. Joao Galamba and Casper uh, Klinger, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Now, we're going to go on to uh, meet our panel now as well. And uh, let me just introduce uh, our th uh, three panel members today. We have Elias Yakovides, uh, he's an advisor uh, on green and digital transitions at DG Connect at the European Commission. Uh, we also have Alexandra Gies, a uh, member of the European Parliament, a uh, member of the IMCO Committee uh, in the Parliament as well. And Veronique Willems, uh, she's the Secretary General of SME uh, United. Great to see all of you. Uh, can I ask you just for your elevator pitch, 60 seconds, your, your key message. Uh, let's start with uh, Alexandra Gies. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me at this important event. Um, I totally agree, I think, with the message of um, the Portuguese Secretary of State. But uh, what I would like to point out as a lawmaker, that if we want uh, the Green Deal and the digital transformation to go hand in hand, I believe uh, we should start out with the legislation because so far we haven't really seen sustainability and the Green Deal coming up neither in the Digital Services Act nor in the uh, proposal on artificial intelligence. And obviously we don't want the Green Deal to be in contradiction with the digital transformation, but in order to be front runners, I think we have to set things right now in order to have a good basis also for all our enterprises, be them small, medium or big ones like Microsoft to know where Europe is going. I think that's fundamental to make the green and the digital transformation a success. Thank you. Thank you. Elias Jakovides. Well, thank you for the invitation. ICT serves people, which is individuals, society, economy, and the nature. So it, it serves sustainability, the three dimension of sustainability. For decades, we know that ICT is the locomotive of the economy. For quite some time, we're entertaining the societal things like healthcare and education and be progressing there. Of course, there's a lot of things still to be done on digital skills and uh, inequalities and capacities and so on. But the digital environment is quite a new kit on the block. This is something for the commission, while the, it's the two pillars of the commission, it's new. And we do not have yet the metrics to understand which digitalization contributes the best to three of those, including the environment. So the metrics are something that we will build with the Green Digital Coalition. But at the moment, not all digitalizations are equal. And unless we understand which digitalization, in which way this solution contributes to environmental progress and economy and society at the same time, of course, as a sustainability, we will not be able to say where to put the money and if you are a private investor and you want to fund sustainably 
a digitalization, you're still lacking a bit the KPIs to know which way to fund it. So, and one more thing, ICT serves sustainability, but do not ask only that. Ask what sustainability can do for the digital world. How can we progress faster on lower energy chips? How can we progress on quantum computing, on photonics computing, on, on fiber optic deploy, deployment, on digital twins? There is opportunity that sustainability gives for competitiveness and resilience of the digital sector as well. So they are definitely not enemies. There's a lot that is at stake. Thank you. Uh, also, thank you for uh, inviting me to this uh, panel discussion. I think from the point of view of SMEs, uh, on the digital side, they have made some uh, giant steps in the past year and a half uh, due to the pandemic and uh, the lockdowns that have been imposed. Um, on green growth and digital transformation in general, yeah, we, are, we are certain that, uh, that it can drive the European recovery and also vice versa, that recovery will be driving the transition if it's done in the right way. For the big bulk of SMEs, uh, especially the smallest ones, those two transitions still remain big challenges. Especially for those who have been hardest hit by the, by the crisis now, uh, as they have been eating on their reserves, their uh, future investment capacity has been, has been uh, reduced. And for a successful transition, I would like to support uh, Ms. Gies in saying that indeed that enabling legal framework will be very crucial making sure that it's SME fit and they can make the transition. And on the other hand, also creating uh, the facilitating environment with supporting measures to adopt and use those new uh, green and digital technologies. So thank uh, each of you so much for that. You know, let's focus on competitiveness and, and innovation, uh, first of all. You know, twin approach to this, green and digital, is this a high-risk strategy? You know, we're, we're kind of bought into it because it's the, the, the mode of direction, but is it a high-risk strategy? Are we investing everything in a long-term recovery plan that has inherent risk, or do you think this is a really solid direction for Europe? Elias? I don't think that there is an alternative. I'm not sure that what would be lower-risk strategy, because everything else is risking that we... Uh, let's put it that way. Digitalization will happen. Climate change will happen. Do we want to leave it completely at, at the way it's going or do you want to influence anything to, to a desirable result? And in that way, the, what we're trying to bring as a synergy of the two, one plus one is three, I think it's the only way to go. Now, of course, as I said, there is a double, double serving and we should make sure that we enable both directions to serve each other. Now, as I said, not all digitalizations are equal. That's where we need to progress the fastest, to find a standardized, credible method to distinguish between the digitalization. For example, let's think of precision farming, digitizing agriculture. There are better, there are ways and better ways when it comes to getting a sustainable outcome. If you just try to push the more materials and more gadgets at farmers, you will most probably pollute and get them angry because they have no capacities, no skills, no means to deal with all this technology. But if you're trying to focus on changing the 
product-driven agriculture. That means more money is made by more pesticides sold and more fertilizers sold. If you try to change that and bring in ICT to turn agriculture into services that minimize the use of agricultural products, pesticides, fertilizer, and others, then we are there. But of course, then we need to, and I come back to what Ms. Key said, we have to make sure that the, the data portability and the DSAs of the agriculture uh, and making sure that there are no new platform uh, dominant players. So all that is interlinked. And I'll come back to what we're actually doing under the framework of sustainable product initiative and uh, bringing the digital and sustainability together under legislative framework. This is a long-term project. Europe needs a short-term uh, ambition as well. We need to recover quickly. Uh, is the, the twin transition the right approach for this as well? Do you think we're going to get there quickly enough? If we're going to get there quickly Here enough, yeah. you can, can, you, can you hear me? Yes. You we were addressing your question to me, Ed. I can hear you on and off. Um, well, I, I I do think we are. I mean, Europe is always, it takes some time. We need to find compromises. And we have seen that with the recovery, resilience and recovery facility. But still, um, we have all the member states that are coming up with a plan or have most of them have come up with a plan where 37% of the funds of huge investments um, go to the green transition and 20% to the digital transition. So I think we are coming up with it quickly enough. And I think it's it's very, you know, coming back to the first question you asked, is that a risk? The biggest risk of all is not doing anything or going back to normal because, before, you know, when the crisis started, there were huge voices saying, well, well first we have to go back to uh, pre-crisis, pre-COVID levels. And then we think about the digital transition and the green transition. And I think we have made huge steps from here, but now we have to make sure we are really coherent and we really apply that framework, for example, in the recovery and resilience facility. Because I think we will be successful, not only combating the climate crisis, but also in international competition if we are front runners. Front runners. I mean, it's always the early adopters that are successful in international competition. And the earlier we really focus on combating climate change and bringing on technologies, reducing CO2 emissions, um, reducing energy consumption, going to regenerative technologies, um, the better we will fare in international competition, I believe. Thank you. Frederick Willems, I spoke with former Commissioner uh, Gunther Oettinger, I think it was on Friday, and one of his big concerns about the, the twin recovery is that SMEs are going to get squeezed out of it and that uh, a lot of SMEs are simply um, they're not making enough money for, to, to survive in the long term and that the complicated financing of the recovery will not trickle down to SMEs and yet they are 90% of the backbone um, of Europe's uh, economy. How do you see it? Is, is this a high-risk strategy which risks the future of Europe's SMEs and therefore its innovative capacity or are you confident that uh, the right balance will be achieved and the growth will be the outcome? Veronique. Well, I'm, uh, I agree with both, uh, with, with Ilias as well as with Alexandra. Um, it's a challenge that we are facing at the moment. We're in the middle of the green and the digital transition. So our SMEs need to be on board. Um, the fact that the recovery plans have now put those two um, transition at the core makes that there is money available. And with our members at national level and with our sectoral members, 
We have been working since uh, last year to make sure that those funds will also be available for SMEs and that they will trickle down to those who really need it. Um, we have to combine it, as I mentioned before, with, with strengthening their solvency. We were very uh, disappointed that the solvency instrument that was proposed hasn't been taken up by the, by the member states, but we know that at national level uh, and also within the European Parliament, we're looking into possibilities uh, to continue in some way a solvency instrument. And then I think it's also crucial to make sure that, um, that the competitiveness and the innovation strategy makes us again catching up with the digital and also taking the lead in, in the green transition. And, and uh, Europe being a front runner on that field should make us um, make a step ahead. We can also put forward the carrot, access to our markets, uh, access to the, the new technologies, uh, as, as Ilias also mentioned, which we are developing, and there's still a lot to be developed, uh, but also the stick of not being able to access the European market anymore. So in that view, we hope that we will be able to, to soften the cushion for SMEs. And as you mentioned, it's not even 90%, it's a lot more. 93% of all companies in Europe have less than 10 employees. 99.8% are SMEs. So uh, we need to make sure that we get them on board or uh, we won't have a transition. Thank you very much. Elias, uh, you, this is not the first recovery that uh, Europe has had to roll its sleeves up uh, to deal with as well. What's different this time? What's different compared with uh, the financial crisis of 2008, uh, 2010, for example? What have we learned and, and uh, what are we doing with the twin, twin transition as a consequence of what we have learned? Oh, that's a good question. What we learned that the, well, one thing is we learned how to deal with the economic crisis. And as I said, economy is one of the three dimensions. So what we learned with respect to economy and we tried to develop the proxies, we have the so-called digital uh, economy and society index, DESI, that is used by throughout Europe and by member states. So we learned how to make the proxy between digital and economy. And so that, we need to now replicate with respect to society and environment. And we are nowhere yet in trying to estimate the impact of digital on the environment. So we need to quickly get down to the toolbox that we developed for the economy and apply it for society, which is already happening for some time, and for the environment. We, at the moment, we are still struggling to find out what is the footprint of digital. And we have huge differences in estimates. I mean, the estimates we're getting are between 1.3% of total GHG emissions to be the footprint of digital to 4%. You see that there is something completely wrong. So we're trying to come in as a commission with all the stakeholders to create a consistent, standardized, trusted narrative on that. And then to see what is the enablement, which is multiple times bigger. And what Joao was talking about, especially in the energy sector, we will never get the renewables we need if we don't digitize the electricity network, the energy networks. We will never get the gains we want in agriculture, manufacturing, transport, build environment, if we don't apply smartly. But what is smart? We need to define. So this toolbox that we learn how to get smarter with economy, we have to apply to environment. And we are still on the way. We are not yet there. And I can see it from the recovery plans. We are reading what member states sending us how to spend the 750 billion. It's digital, how to do 5G, how to do cloud services, and it's green. And in the green, 
there is very little digital. That means that capacity of people understanding how to use digital for greening the economy is still not there. Well, how do you fix that? You know, whose job is it to, to educate and to incentivize then, Elias? I, well, that's where I come, well, we come with the Green Digital Coalition. So we bring all the stakeholders we can together. So with the help of European Parliament, we have European Parliament pilot project that will support all the non-commercial entities to come to the table. We have 30 leader companies that want to be climate neutral by 2040, including Microsoft. Uh, that will sit around the table to bring consistency and standardized method to do the direct impact, that means the footprint of digital. Let's be consistent how to do it. And how do we circumscribe and evaluate consistently the enablement? Because we have to make sure that digital is, using scientific methods, a solution for climate change. We have a huge portion of our society believing that digital is a pollution. We cannot let that happen because we don't want the social media to start entertaining this concept. We need to quantify and solve this quickly before it becomes narrative that just dis you know makes us swim upwards okay. against the stream. Thank you. Alexander, just follow on from what Elias has said. As a lawmaker, you need some uh, reference point to, to negotiate from as well. Uh, do you feel that you, you're very far away from having the right information to make the right laws to uh, enshrine uh, the, the necessary conditions for the, the digital and green recovery? Well, as Elias was saying, um, what we're really lacking are the standards because we are sort of battling as well with studies that give very different kinds of evidence. It's very difficult to find your way around those numbers and he explained that. So what we are looking for is really to for the commission to do that kind of job that he was describing and I think we need that very urgently. Um, because right now, the fact is that economic operators that try to be more sustainable don't have a competitive advantage out of that. It might even be on the contrary, because they have to invest, they have to do their research, and they don't really have any, any advantages. So I think that's not, that's not right. What I'm missing in the meantime is having at least some kind of reference in the big legislative proposals on digital that we are negotiating right now that we're having on the table because it's true that member states keep the green investments very separate from the digital investments and I, and I totally share what Ilias commented on that but the commission is doing the same um, that's that's my feeling you know in the digital services act there is not a word on the environment on co2 on climate change there's nothing and we could easily put it, for example, uh, for the DSA nerds in the risk assessments that the companies have to do in the audits um, to have some kind of reference to that, that they have to look at their impact. Well, just only think about the transformative power of uh, online marketplaces in terms of maybe offering a filter to consumers to choose sustainable products. I mean, this is not only about smart grids and about industrial transformation where digitalization is obviously key, but it's also about everybody's behavior, about consumer patterns. And this is something that platforms could easily change or at least give consumers an option. Also think about um, targeted advertisement and the data collection behind it and the impact it has on, uh, on energy consumption. 
we don't have a framework to look into this. And this is what we are expecting from the commission. And if we are not ready to do that, because we don't have the evidence, at least have some kind of reference in, in the legislative proposals. Same for the AI proposal. There is nothing in there. So um, that's that gives an advantage to companies who don't pay attention to that kind of impact. So I think we need at least, even if we don't have the standards ready, but I think we have to look into the future and if we are passing legislation now, um, we need to have some provisions um, on the environmental impact, especially of artificial intelligence. That is an extremely important part of the solution, but can also be an extremely huge part of the problem. I mean, think of the energy consumption of, of training large language models, for example. On the other hand, we absolutely need it for smart grids. So it's important for legislation to have that reference, but it should also be a criterion for deciding which kind of research to fund. I think we, we really need to focus on what we need to do in Europe, and that's definitely the Green Deal and chain, combating climate change. Do you not think that the, if you take the view that the Green Deal and digital transformation are the umbrella below which all the other dimensions of European policy follow, then it's not really necessary to put in the DSA or the AI strategy a clear reference to, to climate as well, because it should be assumed that these objectives at the top must be met if you're to implement this strategy. Do you see it? Is that not a fair way to see it? Well, I, I would prefer it to be the way you're framing it right now, but I don't think that's the case. No, okay. I think we need to put it in there, definitely. Very, very well. Uh, Ronik, uh, you know, the, the digital solutions in terms of how we get sustainability gains uh, as well, you know, SMEs across Europe um, have a huge innovative capacity. You know, what do you see as, as the real scalable uh, ability uh, in terms of digital solutions which can deliver for sustainability? Bronik, what works? Well, I think that, that uh, several things could work. Um, that there are, as, as Ilias also mentioned, there are, there are many um, things in the development at the moment, but what is really important is that those technologies as well reach all SMEs. Uh, we have front runners in, in, the, in the small and medium-sized uh, companies who are developing the technologies, who are working to make the digital and the green um, transition reality. But on the other hand, we have a big bulk of small businesses um, which are following the innovation. And the, the key to a successful transition will be making sure that those followers also get on board. And for this, we see several elements in, in that enabling or that facilitating, facilitating environment, what I, what I mentioned before, creating uh, adequate pathways for those companies to transition in the one on the one hand the predictable legal framework so that they know how to innovate where to invest and on the other hand also making sure that the necessary support is there sme friendly standards that are easily applicable also for those who want to develop new technologies skills development and we see a lot of focus on skills development from uh, for employees but it will be crucial to make sure that also entrepreneurs get the new skills um, connectivity was also also mentioned by, by Mr. Klinger on, on making sure that in rural areas we can get the same development uh, and those will all be um, accompanying um, um, measures that need to make sure that, that the digital and the green transition can happen. And if we look then at, at for instance, big data analysis, um, 5G, uh, AI, blockchain, 3D printing even, those are all um, 
new technologies that can contribute to working more resource efficient, reducing waste, rationalize um, um, production processes. But the key element will be that it reaches the big group of SMEs and that, that it doesn't stay within, uh, within, within one specific innovative group. Yes, this uh, dilemma that we face with 5G, 5G is going to be hugely energy consumptive. And at the same time, if we do this right, the efficiencies that can be gained from all the things that Joao Galumba uh, highlighted as well, you know, the, the, the logistics that can be involved in this as well can produce massive savings. You know, are you confident or are you optimistic that uh, we'll get this right? Or do you think 5G will run ahead of us and we'll just have to catch up again? Well... Let me take a step back. ICT's footprint, normally what dominates the media is the energy consumption. Energy consumption with respect to 5G, there is much, there is very, I mean, 90% energy efficiency. So what the 4G does, 5G can do with 10% of the energy, but the growth of digitalization will be so much faster that it could be that by 2030 we will need more energy because we will do, be doing thousand times more. So the energy efficiency, the Moore's law in energy efficiency, combined with the growth of digitalization, we don't know what the net effect will be, but the latest estimate that I read would be that we may need maybe more energy. But everybody I talk to, all of ICT sector, believes that by 2030 there will be all on renewables which is a little bit different than the pathways to renewables per country. So it's another mystery. How do we get all these renewables that ICT believes in, uh, if there will be enough for this sector, which is faster than the renewable pathway of the country as a whole. But what I want to say is that energy is not, in my view, the biggest problem. It's the materials, the materials and material efficiency. And 5G means more base stations. It's a denser network of materials. And there we're looking how to make sure that we can create some material efficiency that will actually maybe have a bump in the beginning because we'll have to deploy materials and then slowly drive the whole sector to zero. So in a way, I am not afraid. I don't think that we will really go as a footprint up, but we need to green jacket from the beginning, from the design, the 5G is not only the network, it's not only the base stations, it's the 25 billion IoT connected devices that it's supposed to serve. And these 25 billion IoT devices, expected to be 50 billion maybe by 2030, will have to be durable, reusable, software updatable. Otherwise, we're creating another pile of e-waste because we just changed another standard and software update. So we have to be smarter because we already pay the price for the consumer electronics to be really the most durable and software updatable as we would like. But what is coming up is another order of magnitude more from industrial IoT. And we need to make sure that we don't do the same things we're doing now with the, con with the consumer electronics, that we can keep it longer and update and reuse and refurbish, not just throw it away because we're talking about, as I said, 10 times more connected devices than the mobile phones today. And still we can't even produce the semiconductors. So yes, it will be, I think, net effect will be positive because it okay. will enable circular economy. It will enable precision farming. It will enable connected driving. So the enablement effect will be much bigger 
because I don't think that the footprint of 5G will actually grow much. So, but the enablement will be much, much bigger. But we need to think globally with the whole ecosystem of materials that ICT will require and deploy. Okay. Thank you. Alexander Gis, you, you view this the same way? Uh, I do actually, yes, I do. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, the resources are a huge issue. Um, so I'm, I'm very glad to hear uh, Ilyas already working on this and, and I hope the commission will come up with something. Um, I, I also think that um, we really, what was I trying to say? Um, if we don't want to have a contradiction between digitalization and, um, and renewable energy and combating climate change, we need to think about really where we need it. You know, it's not digital digitalization. It's it's not just a magical solution because usually you have people who are in favor of the greening and combating climate change and the green deal, and then you have the people in favor of digitalization. And as Elias was saying, we, we have to meet and talk to each other and see really what exactly are our goals and how are we going to achieve them. And this is what we need to build in right now and see that um, in a realistic way. I often, if I talk about the challenges with with the green deal and digitalization i'm told oh well you don't want to be modern and this is the future and this is obvious and digitalization is to is going to solve every problem but it is not we have to do it the right way this is what we need to do and maybe to come back to the energy issue um yes hopefully we will have only renewable energy in the future but we are still quite far away from that and we will need it for everything so um and even renewable energy isn't completely free it still has an impact on landscape protection for example on nature protection um so there are always trade-offs and energy will never be or probably not in the next 20 or 30 years maybe maybe one day but will will not be completely free and without any cost on um in in other aspects so we need to make careful choices and we need to make them now well in terms of careful choices i spoke with uh, the chief technology officer of audi a couple of weeks ago and he was saying look the technology that people want in their fridge, you can have 5G in your fridge, but your fridge isn't going to go roaming anywhere. It's, it's a static object and 4G can do, even 3G can do exactly what you want uh, with the right kind of connectivity as well. So when we're talking about making the right choices, do we need to have a, a very consumer, a hard-headed approach to consumer products as well? You know, consumers will inevitably choose the latest thing, 5G, but that may not be the best approach for them. Are, are we going to have to have a much more grand Granular approach to how we develop our consumer markets as well as make them more energy efficient like this? Do you think that's possible? Alexandra and then Veronique? Is that a question to me? I, I think it is. I mean, I think consumers, a lot of consumers make the right choice if they're given a choice. It depends on where, where the incentives are. And that was one of the ideas I, I brought up before. For example, if market online marketplaces give consumers the choice to choose um, uh, sustainable products and to find sustainable products easily, I mean, that's a possibility. Or the right to repair. Today, it's so difficult to get a phone or uh, whatever digital object you have to get repaired. Um, I think this is where we need to create a framework to give consumers the possibility to make the right choices. And I think many, not all of them, but 
many of them will make sustainable choices. Absolutely. It's just that right now we don't have we don't have the best framework for them to do that. Often people are looking for, you know, the possibility to repair an object, to come to buy a more sustainable product, and you can't, or because you can't figure out what it is, or because it's three times as, as expensive in terms of food and agriculture was mentioned before, you know, uh, biological food and, and food with a low CO2 footprint is often more expensive, but not for intrinsic reasons, but for financial incentives and the way we finance our agriculture. And this is true for a lot of other products as well. So we have to create the right framework there in order to, to enable consumers to make good choices. Thank you, Alexandra. Sorry, Alexandra, Veronique. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, it, it's uh, important to, on the one hand, have a, a good consumer awareness raising that they also are well informed. Uh, on the other hand, I think indeed that Alexandra mentioned also the point on pricing and, and many of our SMEs are ready to work in the repair and, and the, renews, the reuse, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think that SMEs have a strong track record on, on those elements, but they also need to get the, the necessary, for instance, spare parts to be able to, to, to renew a certain product and also do it at a, at a decent cost. And I think there also the, the offset or the balance will be very important with, um, with the competitiveness towards other, other regions in the, in the world. So it's uh, consumer awareness raising on the one hand, making sure that, uh, that on the financial side, they also get a balance and then that, um, that they also realize that sometimes sustainable products might be a bit more uh, expensive, but also have a longer period of, of life or a longer life cycle, whereas more cheaper products might not be that long lasting. So an interesting uh, project was SME as a startup uh, supported by a European Innovation Technology Agency. They were finalists in the awards last year and it was an app on the phone to show exactly what uh, Alexandra and Veronica both just mentioned about enabling consumer choice about the longevity of individual products and the cost of uh, repair or the cost of the lifetime cost of that and, and in terms of energy consumption as well. Elias, you wanted to respond there as well? Yes, I wanted to. There are two, three things I wanted to maybe bring uh, together. One is information to consumers, like the footprint of each product it would be great to have. And I want to link it to the DSA issue. Before we promise it to people, we have to make sure that we have a means to do it and to ensure quality of such information. So what I'm personally working on is something called digital product passport that will track the materials and the CO2 from the material extraction to subcomponent, component, and manufacturing of a product. And that digital product passport will also give information to repairers, to you know, repairability manual, where the spare parts can be found, to refurbishers, to, to second-hand users, and to recyclers. So this is a mega project that we hope to start rolling next year that will provide the exact footprint per project because per product. Because today we have average uh, CO2 of a coffee machine that was calculated 10 years ago with completely different conditions. So based on that, we, can, we cannot really start putting it on the same level as a price and giving it as a precise information for consumers to understand. But we will try to go as quickly as possible to provide that information. And what people want is information not necessarily being nudged, but there are many that already decided to have a greener lifestyle. What we need to do is to support them in that choice. And so 
what I see a lot of narratives about how we are as people responsible for what is happening today. The consumers are responsible for what is happening to us as climate change. First of all, be aware that consumers' choice is about 15% of total GHGs. The systemic changes and industrial choices are much bigger. So let's don't put such responsibility on people and on people's choices but rather give them information and empower them to give them response ability to what is happening to us. This information so they have a response ability is something we should all collectively work on so they have the information to support their lifestyle. And in that job, there is a lot of SME jobs on the circular economy. So the digital product passport can actually create new jobs that have to do with reuse, reparability, refurbishment, and also a lot of logistics along the value chains that's all going to be okay. smaller companies that will need to provide software packages as kind of cloud as a service to a lot of SMEs that have no capacity to create the ICT environment to host data somewhere in the data space XYZ. So a lot okay. of opportunities. If I had to choose one silver bullet for digital is to make digital a server of circular economy. And that changed the business models from quantity-driven profits, so I sell more materials, I make more money, to service as a product. We're dematerializing, dematerializing the economy, but serving the needs of people still there. Thank you. Alexander, you want to reply? I also want to ask our uh, audience just to send in more questions. We're going to come to questions in just a second. We already have some there. Uh, so send your questions in now and we'll put those to the panel in just a moment. Alexander, you wanted to respond. Now, I just wanted to make the point actually that Elias just made that this creates a lot of jobs, especially if you have a, a regional circular economy as well, because people often want to buy products from their own region, from their own town, um, from their area, and they're just difficult to find. And I think digital networks can really help in, in finding those companies and finding those people and finding those services. Um, we just need to enable this, and this creates jobs, especially for, for very small enterprises, micro-enterprises, and I think that's extremely important also in order to, to enable a just transition, which is, which, is, which is very important, we can't do without it. Um, I totally agree with Elias on not putting too much responsibility on the shoulders of consumers, especially, you know, coming from a region that still has huge coal mines um, and one of the greatest polluters of, of, of Europe. Um, so I think this is definitely the first challenge we need to face. But I, I do think consumers and citizens um, do want to have the feeling that they're contributing, that they can do something, that their own life and the choices they make can influence change in a positive way. And I think this is what's so important about it because people, you know, separate their garbage correctly and try not to buy plastic, will make political choices and support um, bigger climate change combating and green deal choices that go in the same direction. And I think this is also why this is so important. Thank you. Veronique. Yeah, I would like to nevertheless balance a bit because not putting any responsibility on the consumers, according to us, isn't the right way forward either. I'm, you need to balance because you cannot put all responsibility on businesses either and certainly not on small businesses. I agree that they are responsible to a certain extent that they need to, uh, for instance, provide information. On the other hand, we also have to avoid that they get um, a huge amount of red tape to, to, to digest 
because in that way they will also be demotivated to make ex extra actions. So I think we need to strike a right balance between, on the one hand, raising awareness on, among consumers, providing information. On the other hand, also uh, asking a lot of information, especially from crafts businesses, for instance, uh, where they don't work in a in a serious production, but more in a in a, a piece by piece production, where it's uh, even more challenging to provide information uh, piece by piece. Thank you. Let's go to our first question. Elias, you can have first uh, go at this uh, from Anonymous. If you had to choose a metaphor for the synergy between green growth and digital transformation, which would you choose? Your best metaphor ever. Metaphor. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Is Alexandra? It's a tough question, actually. Well, I think a user that asks a question like that should give us some, like a choice, you know, if it's a multiple choice, like let's, ABC. Let's ask uh, that. Whoever sent happen. the question, give us give us three choices okay. and uh, the panel can vote. Veronica, any right. quick thoughts on this? It's a challenging question. Okay, so whoever <laughs> sent the, the question, yeah, whoever sent the question, if you can reply again with three options and we'll, we'll put those to the panel just a second. We also have a question from Professor Kenneth Stokes. Uh, digitalization puts uh, pressure on higher education. Right now, the EU's universities do not have the capacity to deliver. Um, are new capacities being developed? Ilias. Yes, but that's uh, more on digitalization and digital transformation of education. Okay. Uh, there, we working, of course, on the broadband capacity as much as possible. That's where 5G comes into. We have a whole department working for ICT for education, so I can actually tell you that we're trying our best and making sure that we have the online uh, curricula that we provide in connectivity to uh, the best possible for the hospitals, uh, universities, schools and uh, ports and stations, mobility. So all that is kind of a European plan, but at the end it's a member states to make their priority uh, right to deploy in the right places. Okay, uh, Alexander, Veronica, you want to comment on this? No? Okay. Um, so please keep sending your questions. We'll come back to that in just a second. I want to talk about the just transition uh, for a moment as well. Uh, Alexander, nice words or is are we really going to get this uh, close to where it should be in terms of managing the inequalities that the transition uh, is inevitably going to produce? And we saw the reaction uh, with the Gilets jaunes just to mention uh, one outcome uh, when President Macron tried to, to raise uh, fuel taxes. You know, this is this is a long road and a, a delicate one as well. Are, is the European Union going about this the right way, Alexandra? Um, I'm not sure. I think it's not decided yet. Um, you asked before, what did we learn from the previous cases? I think we learned a lot. We learned to stick together as European member states. Um, we learned to invest. We learned to look forward and not backward. And this is what we are doing with the recovery and resilience facility. Um, what we did not learn was to pay attention to social inequality because we are seeing that the poorest um, population groups are paying the highest price for the COVID crisis and that they're not sufficiently being considered, I think, in, in next generation EU. Um, on the green, and I think the green transition has to go hand in hand with um, decreasing social inequality. Because one thing we know is that the richest people um, consume emit more CO2 emissions and by, by, by huge factors, you know, poorer people, low-income people are not 
an issue for the climate. They are not the problem. And we know that inequality um, worsens the climate crisis. So I think this is totally important um, also for social acceptance. And you mentioned the Gilles Jaune. Um, so I think we really have to look at how we finance this. We can't have uh, poorer income groups or you know low income groups to finance the climate crisis or to bear the brunt of it. And this is why I think the new own resources to come back to, to European context are so important um, that we really do a God good job on this. The carbon border um, tax, for example, the digital tax and 15%, and I mean, there was an agreement in the G7, but I think, um, Joe Biden proposed, the Biden administra administration proposed 21%, and it was Europe to try to lower it, and now there seems to be an agreement on 15%, and I think that's a huge mistake. It's absolutely a huge mistake because we need this money. We need this public money in order to invest correctly. And what we are seeing going on in the U.S., especially in the Bay Area, which we all a little bit admire because they have these great companies and all this innovation, but social inequality is increasing in an incredible way. So where you really have the billionaires, you, all, uh, you also have a sharp increase in homeless people living in the streets. And this is not what we want in Europe. And, and what, and yeah, but and if this is an issue... I, I think it's undecided but we we should improve we're not doing our best right now okay Alexander, just to follow up on that as well if this is a question of competitiveness for europe as well and the united states is not investing in any uh, significant welfare structure and europe has been would be required to do so as a means to ensure just transition does this mean that we are losing a competitive step by ensuring that uh, we follow through on uh, an inequality agenda alexander well, I don't think so. I mean, I think people who are well-fed, well-educated, and who feel safe and who are healthy are a positive factor for competition and not a negative one. So I think it's it's a choice you make as a society, but companies are looking for well-educated people who are healthy and who are who are able um, to work on on high levels, and this is what we have in Europe. I mean, this is this is really the the the, the wealth we have in Europe, and and the strong factor that we have a very educated, well-educated workforce. Um, so I'm, you know, from a values perspective, I don't think it's a choice. Even if we were more competitive uh, without it, I would go for it personally. So it's a question of values as well. But I also think we are we are more competitive this way. Thank Definitely. you, Elias. Yes, I want to, well, both questions together then. We cannot, a, a little bit of a theory, there are three dimensions in sustainability. The new discovered one is the, for digital, is the environmental one. And we have some kind of enthusiasts that pull on that dimension so fast that they forget the social dimension. And so we have some mayors or local, some local authorities that say, Oh, I will just forbid and I put only electric cars to be allowed to the center of the town. Is this just? No. So we will have a reaction. So what I'm trying to say is that if we take too fast steps without thinking of the full three dimensions, economy, society, environment, we will have repercussions. We take one step fast and that will take us two steps back. But that's okay. There is the bigger problem. And that is a problem of uh, democracy. I mean, if we don't take people with us, it will reflect in the elections. It will reflect in our democracy. And it may, because the climate change is a big existential problem, it may lead to kind of a collapse of the civilization as we, as we know it. 
And it can lead to things, and what I mean collapse is that the basic issues, like basic things, societal provisions of our European uh, society will not be provided anymore by state. So we have to really take it together because there is a bigger thing than just progress on climate change uh, at stake. So it has to go together. And when we talk green digital transformation, we mean those two, society and, and green together, although it says green, so maybe it's better to say just green digital transformation. Thank you. Veronique? And what I wanted to say about the... Let me come back in just a second. Give Veronique a chance to reply now as well. Veronique, thank you. Yeah, I think on, on the just transition, what both Ilias and, and uh, Alexandra mentioned uh, is correct. What we've seen, for instance, now during the pandemic is that a lot of self-employed and SMEs uh, have been hardest hit, um, where uh, member states have been taking measures to create, for instance, short-time work schemes to provide employees with, with uh, a sufficient income. Many, many self-employed were still left out in the measures that were taken or only got very limited uh, compensation. So that's the first element that, that I take along with the just transition. We need to make sure that, that we accompany the restructuring process. And that's also why SME United is that much emphasizing not only the innovators, but especially making sure that the followers are, are also taken on board and that they get the necessary technical assistance, know-how, experience, skills, and funding. And that also the regulatory framework is in place taking into account that, for instance, if a baker invests in an oven or, as Ilias mentioned, in a, in a small van to, to sell his products in a, in a certain city and at a certain moment, a year later, that city decides that he cannot enter the, the city center with his van anymore or the, the place where he has his oven to make the bread, uh, the, 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 company, uh, the, the community decides, okay, and now we are going to prohibit this kind of ovens. There is a, an investment perspective that the entrepreneur has to take into account. You make an investment and you will have to depreciate that over 5, 10, 15 years. And if you, in the midterm, change the legislation and you, you do not leave sufficient time for the entrepreneur to invest again, you will get blocked. And, and I think that what Ilias mentioned also on the on the, the pressure on democracy will be will be very big. What we put forward with the elections in 2019 was... We have 25 million SMEs in the EU. They employ around 100 million persons. If that entrepreneur is not happy with what the European Union is doing and he starts grounding at his employees and they're with four, they go home and they tell their family, oh, the boss not happy about Europe, it spreads. The friends hear it, the family hears it, and it spreads very quickly. And that's also why we are always emphasizing that much on better and smart regulation, making sure that we take the smallest one uh, as a basis for developing legislation, because that's also the biggest group that will be happy or unhappy with what they do in Brussels. Thank you. Elias, uh, quick comment, just to follow up what you were saying earlier, and then we're going to, yeah, well, to the closing statements. Go ahead. To your question, if it's against our competitiveness, I think if we do it you know, socially and environmentally correct, the adoption rate will be bigger and the adoption rate bigger than in anywhere in the world means competitiveness uh, in that way. So that's all I wanted to comment. It's not, okay. don't think about it only as how fast a company comes up with some kind of innovation. Think about the pyramid all the way to the basis. How many people are actually using green digital services? Thank you. Just before we do your, your closing uh, remarks, uh, Anonymous uh, came back with uh, three options. So. 
the question initially was if you had to choose a metaphor for the synergy between green growth and digital transformation, what would you choose? You have A, B, and C to choose from. Would it be a lubricant, uh, lubricating the engines of our economy? Would it be an accelerant, think oxygen and fire? Or is it intrinsically tied, are they intrinsically tied to each other like hydrogen and oxygen? Alexander, A, B, or C? Microphone, microphone. After years, still forget. Um, <laughs> let's say it should be C. Okay, it might so not you go... be, but it should be. We should make it C. All right, intrinsically tied to each other, like hydrogen, oxygen. Veronique? Well, at the moment, I would still go for option B because I believe that uh, digital still can do a lot of uh, new developments to also accelerate the, the green transition. So okay. right now, I would go for option B. Thank you. Elias? Yeah, they clearly see. I mean, oxygen and hydrogen together gives water, which is its life. So it's basically green digital, it's our life. Very well done. Okay, and so thank you to Anonymous for coming back to us with that. Let me just say 30 seconds each just to wrap up and uh, your key message, your key takeaway uh, from today. Veronique? key message would be that if we want to have that green and digital transition we have to have the SMEs on board and for that we need a good uh, legal framework and a facilitating environment taking them on the journey. Thank you. Yes. Well I said digitalization will happen, climate change will happen. It's up to you to take a role. Everybody's role matters. Uh, what we need to collectively decide to make sure that whatever step you're taking is in the right, di right direction. And for that, uh, we need everybody as a stakeholder on board and they can contact us because this is what we want to do as a commission to find the, the best and optimal direction with green digitalization. Excellent. Thank you. Alexander, last word. Well, fighting uh, climate change and uh, is, is the most important task we have in our generation. We are the last generation that can really stop that in order to make a better life for our children. And when we have to make sure that digitalization is part of the solution and not uh, part of the problem. And in order to ensure that, we have to make the right choices now. We don't have time. We need to do it now. Alexander, Elias, uh, Veronique, uh, thank you so much for taking time to be with us today. Thanks also uh, to uh, Joao and to Casper for joining us earlier. To our audience, thank you for your attention today. I know we are competing with the other presidency uh, and uh, the show that's in town uh, today. Just let me say thanks to our team here, to Malta, to Zoran, uh, to Tamara and Simona for all their hard work and also to the Microsoft team as well. Pleasure to work with you as always. I'm Brian McGuire. I wish you a good day.